Welcome to Questions That Matter. This is a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute, and I'm your host, Randy Newman. Today, my conversation partner is Michael Kruger, the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's also a professor of New Testament and early Christianity there. We're going to talk about the second century, and in particular, a great book Michael has written about the second century, Christianity at the Crossroads. Uh, Michael, welcome to Questions That Matter. Thanks, Randy. Look forward to the, the conversation. Well, thanks so much for the time. I, I should tell our listeners, you've, you've really written, uh, uh, I think, a dozen or more books, uh, a lot about early Christianity and its implications for today. Um, you've written a, a very helpful book for college students about hanging on to their faith and remaining faithful during the college years. Um, but but I want to talk about this second century because I, I found your book so very encouraging uh, in, in an odd way to hear about how difficult things were in the second century and yet then to look and see how powerfully God worked. Um, but let's begin here. Why the second century? Why is that sec- century um, so very crucial? I, the, the subtitle of your book is How the Second Century Shaped the future of the church. So how did it shape? Why is it so crucial? Well, I'm glad you were encouraged by it. I mean, it is a little bit of a of a sort of a pedantic topic at first glance. People think, well, why should I care about the second century? And, and, and to your point, why do I care about the second century here as a scholar? And I, it lots of reasons. One, one, one maybe obvious reason is a lot of my research on canon and text happens to center on the second century. So I've spent a lot of time in it over the years and, and have been fascinated with with what's there and also what isn't there, um, it's a it's a century we don't know a lot about. It, it, surprisingly, I mean it's it's been called the Cinderella century in the early church. Hmm. It's sort of a, a century that's maybe got the biggest gaps in our knowledge of what we wish we knew, and it's the earliest century to the apostles. Right, the apostles are first century, so it's the closest you get to them. It's the closest you get to the to the century in which Jesus lived, but yet our our, our sources aren't nearly as as prolific as we wish they were. And on top of that, and of course, this is the whole point of the book, I argue that that, that 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 Christianity really was at a crossroads in the second century. So many things were happening, so many decisions were taking place that the future of the church, at least at a human level, was really uh, determined by by the direction the church would take during that that crucial time. So a lot's going on in that century, and I think, I think we have a lot to learn from it. The area of the canon is a uh, specialty of yours. You have a, a blog called Canon Fodder. Uh, if people have questions about why are these the books that we have in the Bible? Uh, the, are the books that we have in the Bible the ones we should have in the Bible? And what about those other books that some people think should be? That's uh, an area that you've served the church tremendously. So I do recommend for people, if if that's the question you're wondering about or you have people asking you about, uh, Michael's work on his website, and we'll have all those links. Um, but And it was during the second century that those decisions were being made. Let me read a, a part for our listener right at the beginning of your book. You write, while certainly not comparable to the pressures faced by second century Christians, the modern church is being seen more and more as a threat to the social stability of modern society, similar to the way the second century church was viewed by the Roman elites. If nothing else, we need to learn, again, what it means to be the church when we lack social and political standing. 
uh, I think that's what kept striking me is, oh, there's there's quite a bit of similarity between the 21st second century and the second century. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, this was one of the things that I was struck by is that um, the, the cultural pressures the second century church faced are kind of eerily similar to what we are starting to face, not fully, of course, uh, now in the, in the in the modern West. And that is this idea that Christianity is seen as bizarre, superstitious, and a threat to sort of coherent social order. So it's not even so much that people disagree with Christianity, although many do, but rather they find it as this strange superstition that probably is going to be a threat to the to the to the to the culture and should be snuffed out. And uh, the century where that's probably most comparable to is the second century. Hmm. Um, obviously, everyone knows by the time the fourth century rolls around, Christianity is now in power and has stayed in power at least at some level ever since. Um, but it was really the second century where Christianity was the weakest, the most vulnerable, uh, and, and, and I'm probably at one level the most persecuted, you could say, um, mm. by the Roman Empire, at least on, on various levels. And so I think there's a, there's a lesson to learn there. And when you look at the history of the church, it just, this is a little bit of an overstatement, but I think it's still generally the case, is that the church never does better when it's in power. Um, it, it seems like the, the more we sort of, quote, succeed in conquering whatever culture, world, place we're in, things <laughs> rarely get better. Um, in fact, I think we're at our best when we're when we're uh, sort of a weak minority within the culture. And I think that's when we uh, have the best light. And so I think I would love for us in the modern church to learn a little bit, again, what it's like to be a, a church not in power and be OK with that uh, and realize there's 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 bigger things about the calling of the church and simply controlling the culture you live in. Well, there's a lot wrapped up in that little phrase you just threw in there and be OK with that, because <laughs> yeah. I think I think what a lot of people are realizing, a lot of Christians are realizing, hey, we're, we're, we're not in power anymore. We're, we're not the dominant player in shaping culture, but we, we think we once were not all that long ago. And so the solution is we need to get back in power. We need we need to get into control. And uh, that, as you say, that that really hasn't worked that well in the past 2000 years. Um, What are some more lessons that you think if in some bizarre way, if someone from the second century who was a Christian, just not even a Christian leader, a Christian uh, lay person in the church, second century could somehow stop in on our world. What what would they want to say to us? What would they want to tell us? Wow, so many things. Um, it's interesting. I think you know one one of the advantages of being a, a minority culture or a minority group in your culture, and even to some extent, an advantage of being under persecution is it made the Christians in the second century sharper um, and and better at formulating their Christian thinking and 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 formulating their theology and helping uh, better articulate what they believe to a, 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 to the pagan philosophies of the day. When you're in power, you don't feel the obligation to do that. When you're when you're in power, you don't actually learn how to do that. Um, but they were forced to to learn how to do that, and 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 I think that's a lesson that they can teach us today. Cor- on a corollary level, with that, another lesson they can teach us is when they did talk to their culture, they they were very much interested in expressing and persuading them of of the truth of 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 the one God, Jesus Christ, um, that He was worthy of worship, and that that's who you should follow. It's interesting. They didn't. They didn't so much appeal to the Roman government for, uh, you know, political ends. Uh, they weren't sort of trying to shape, you know, sort of law and policy. The only times they really got involved in that was when it pertained to unjust persecution of Christians. 
Hmm. Most of the Christians in this in the second century were just trying to say, hey, we're, we're not a threat to you. Stop arbitrarily putting us in jail hmm. and, 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 and killing us. So it was a fairly low bar there of justice, right? So they weren't looking for special privileges. They were just looking to live peaceably in their world. And so I think there's a, there's a lesson there. It was it, the, the main thrust was, can we live at peace in this world? And, and how can we evangelistically reach it? And I think, I think those are some great lessons. All right, so we we, we need a little bit uh, more uh, education here, um, and I, I think the way I want to ask the question is: um, so, how bad was it? Um, what? How, how bad was? Uh, there's two ways I want to explore this. Uh, how bad was the culture? How sinful? How degrading was it? Uh, and how bad was the persecution? So let, let's start on the persecution front, because I mean, I mean that can be like this very broad and almost vague category for people. But what what were the kinds of things Christians were experiencing? Yeah, so there, there's two categories I cover in the book. What you might call political persecution, right, which is civil, like people being thrown in jail or even killed, and then what I would call intellectual persecution um, or social persecution. Um, uh, on the former, it was rather sporadic in the second century. You know, I certainly want to do away, and I try to do this in the book, with this idea that every Christian in every province of the empire was always at risk of getting thrown in jail. That's simply not true. Um, for, for large swaths of the time, most Roman governors probably never even really noticed the Christians or cared much about them. Um, it wasn't really till you know, Diocletian in the third century and so forth that the, that the persecution got really, really bad uh, on a political civil level. That said, I mean, people are still being thrown in jail and people still being killed. I mean, one of the earliest examples of this is Trajan, right? Who even the early second century is the governor of, uh, I'm sorry, not Trajan, Pliny, uh, the, 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 the younger, who's the governor of Bithynia, writes a letter to Emperor, Emperor Trajan saying, hey, I'm, I'm torturing Christians to try to learn what they're up to. And so we know it was happening, but just it was more sporadic. The thing I think our culture now can relate to more, though, is the second category, which is more of a intellectual social persecution. It wasn't such so much that Christians were being sort of always killed and thrown in prison. It was rather they were ostracized. They were seen as a threat. Um, they were cut out of various sectors of, of what you might call sort of um, acceptable society. And they were, they were seen as, um, you know, sort of a contagion to be, to be squashed. And I think for, for a lot of Christians today, we feel that, right? Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably the, the comparable grounds. Obviously, at least in America, we're not, we're not being thrown in jail yet, um, although you could argue there's different kinds of economic persecution that are maybe starting to ramp up. So I don't want to overplay the, the parallels, but I think just on a social intellectual level, uh, it was a challenge. And, and that's probably very much parallel to what people feel today. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Now, on the other side of the coin, give us some uh, illustrations or information about how 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 sinful was the culture? <laughs> yeah. So there's so many ways to slice that up. Um, certainly, it was sinful, but 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 I think the the, the better word to say here is non-Christian. And 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 the reason mm. I use that term is because it wasn't just they were doing bad things, so to speak, although that happened. Um, but they were thinking in ways that were completely out of the box in the way we would think today. And this is something that I think modern Christians probably need to take a deep breath and remember. As much as we feel persecuted by our modern world, it really doesn't compare anything to the ancient world. Um, in terms of both the the sort of pagan nature of the world, if I could say it like that, uh, but also the worldviews the average person had in 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 the second century of the Greco-Roman Empire were were nothing akin to today. Even 
even the, the most staunch unbeliever in the American culture today, or at least in the West, probably has a relatively Christian worldview and doesn't even know why they have it. Um, they generally believe in morality. They believe in good and evil. They probably believe that you should help the poor and take care of the sick. They probably believe in some sort of um, uh, a system of, 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 of right and wrong, even though at the same time they often say they don't. Um, and, and people don't realize how much in debt even non-Christians today are to the, the fact that Christianity had such influence in the last 2,000 years. So if we were to go back in time to the second century, it would be shockingly hard for most people to deal with that kind of culture. And I think that is, you know, a sobering lesson that when you think you have it hard, you just need to take a deep breath and realize you really don't. Um, and we need to sort of, you know, realize if the big picture is kept in mind that, that we'll be fine, um, even if we lose the so-called culture wars, which maybe we shouldn't have been trying to win in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that's one of the lessons to take away from the second century. Yeah. Um. Well, I, I know you studied uh, under uh, Larry Hurtado, and I've read some of his work, and uh, I, I remember being struck and in, in his work and in yours about how what we would see now as just horrific immorality was the, the norm. It was just accepted. Um, I think it was in Hurtado's book where he talked about how it was just the norm that if people had babies that they didn't want, they, they, they threw them out on a trash heap and were just allowed to die. And Christians were the ones who came along and rescued these babies off of these trash heaps. And, or the idea that um, uh, a man could have sex with whoever he wanted, uh, even if he was married. So he had his wife, but he also had who, you know, however many concubines and uh, even uh, young boys. I mean, it, 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 it was like like nauseating to read some of this, but it was a combination of this was the norm and people just accepted it. Uh, am I remembering this correctly? I, I, I hope I'm not distorted. Yeah, yeah, well, this goes back a little bit to, you know, the prior point about, you know, how sinful was it? I mean, um, we don't realize how radical Christianity really was in its claims. So, you know, the idea that you should be monogamous in marriage with with both men and women would have been radical. And <laughs> in fact, this is one of the reasons I mentioned in the book that I think so many women were probably attracted to the early Christian movement because there's real dignity for women in Christianity. Yeah. Um, the, yes. the husband was expected to have the same sexual uh, uh, fidelity as the wife. And that was radically different from the <laughs> Greco-Roman world. And this is why when you read Paul's, you know, uh, exhortations of First Corinthians 7 about how uh, a wife has the husband's body and the, bo the and the husband has the wife's body that it's both ways um, <laughs> would have been stunningly shocking. The the thing that people don't realize in the Western world when they read that they're like, well, yeah, and I'm like, no, it's not. Well, yeah, if you lived in the second century, that it only seems natural now, but back then it wasn't natural at all. The mm. same with with helping those who are weak and sick and uh and 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 generally outcast. The idea of of charity. The idea of philanthropy, the idea that you would help those who are less fortunate than you, <laughs> people don't realize that that is a fundamentally uh, Christian idea that, that mm -hmm. is the result of Christianity having the influence it did. And what you realize is that it was the Christians who were helping the people who were sick. I mentioned this in the book, too. You know, um, when the plagues would ravage the major cities, the, 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 the elite and the wealthy would leave. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the Christians were known for staying behind. Mm. Um, and, and that is something that set them apart. So they were, so one of the things that set Christians apart was, was their ethics. 
And I think, you know, we didn't realize that our, our sexual morality, our, our view of ethics generally, our care for the, for the poor and for those who are mistreated in society is, is, is one of the ways, not the only way, one of the ways that the early Christian movement won over, if we could say it that way, the, the Greco-Roman world. And I think we, we can't forget that in the modern day. I'm very excited to tell you about a new resource we're working on at the C.S. Lewis Institute. It's going to be a series of relatively short articles that answer challenging questions to the Christian faith. So less than a thousand words, which is like the front and back of one piece of paper, maybe even less than that, of questions like, why does a good God allow evil and suffering? And isn't Jesus just like all the other religious people and aren't all religions the same? And uh, the, the questions that people are likely to ask us if we get into some really good, deep conversations with them. And it's going to be a growing resource. There'll be a new, um, a, a new topic and princip- a piece of paper, basically, uh, for you to read and, and share with non-believers. So check it out. It's going to be, if it's not already, it will be at cslewisinstitute.org slash resources dash category slash challenging questions. Or if that's just crazy, go to cslewisinstitute.org and search for questions. I sure hope that'll help. Thanks. Well, we can't forget it, but we, but we also need to educate people about it because I, I think just people don't know that. Um, no, they don't. Um, and and it's a great encouragement when you find out. Oh no, wait a minute. These these are Christian ideas. Uh, these flow from the fact that all people, men and women, are created in God's image, and marriage is holy and uh, sacred. Um, but other worldviews don't have that basis. Certainly not uh, the the pagan worldview of the second century. Yeah, uh, it was a harsh, brutal world. You would, if you got sick, you didn't have the medical care, and you didn't even have you didn't even have the the the, the infrastructure where someone was going to be able to give you Medicare or Medicaid, or you go to the ER. There's there's some sort of you know, s- sort of social program to, to take care of you on food stamps or <laughs> mm. people don't realize that, 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 that in the ancient world, when you were in trouble, that was it, yeah. which is why, you know, so much exhortation is given in the Bible to taking care of orphans and widows because mm. there was no government programs to do it. Mm. And, and, and nobody cared if you died. Um, and, uh, and so it was, it's definitively a Christian idea. Man. Well, toward uh, as you come to the conclusion in your book, you talk about three primary lessons, I think, that we should learn from the second century. The very first one we've already talked about a bit, that um, that we need to learn about what it means to be a prophetic voice in the midst of a hostile culture, of speaking out when we don't have the, the natural affirmed platforms. Um, but the second lesson, and you spend quite a bit of time in here, uh, you, you, you write... Um, As we look at the second century, we are reminded again that Christianity at its core is a bookish religion. Uh, What do you mean by that? And how how do we need to learn that again? Yeah, when when you're journeying through the second century, the thing I enjoyed most about writing this book is is all the ways that that Christianity shocked the world around it. And we, we mentioned several already. One was its ethics. And there are several we haven't mentioned, like we haven't we haven't really talked about its monotheism yet um, as another way it shocked um, the world around it. 
But but this is a, a yet another way that, that 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 Christianity shocked the world around it, and that is that they were bookish in their religious practice. Now, of course, there are other people in the ancient world that were bookish, but they weren't religious bookish. They were <laughs> philosopher bookish. Okay, uh-huh. um, and so this was very confusing to people. The only other group that really did this was Judaism, and of course, Judaism was seen as its own thing, separate from everyone else, and they weren't really you know intermingling so much with the broader Greco-Roman world because they weren't really made up of Gentiles, but that's not true for Christians. Christians were very Gentile, and a lot of them were converting out of the Greco-Roman world. And consequently, suddenly they're faced with a religion that that at its core is built around texts, books, that, that claim to be speaking uh, from God. And so this would have been completely bizarre, which is why uh, for most people in the ancient world, they, they saw Christianity more like a philosophy than a religion. Mm. Um, it, it, didn't, it didn't fit their categories. Religion wasn't bookish. Religion was ritual. You know, uh, and and the other thing about religion, as I hinted a minute ago, is that religion wasn't exclusive, but uh, but Christianity was both bookish and exclusive, and so it it it, it was both perplexing for Romans, also infuriating uh, for Romans, uh, especially the latter, the, the the exclusive nature of it. So uh, yeah, and this gets back to my issue with canon and text, and I think you know we have a you know the the, the early church valued these books centered themselves on these books. And, 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 and we obviously have to continue to do that if we're going to keep that heritage alive. Mm. Um, I, I smiled when I saw that sentence about a, a bookish religion. Um, but, but again, we've, we've just, we've sort of just taken it for granted, but no, that was rather unusual to be that insistent on, no, this book, these texts, are sacred and we need to read them and study them and uh, investigate them, discuss them. Um, again, we've, we've just sort of come to um, take them for granted or worse. I think there's in some today, there's a disdain for that. Oh, don't be so, so uh, academic or theological. Um, no, that's exactly uh, right. There's sort of this anti-intellectual strain in some quarters today, back in the early church, Obviously, there was plenty of people who were not scholars, but at least they were committed to the fundamental value of uh, of text driving it. In, co- in a close corollary to that, um, which I think I mentioned in the book briefly, is it, it wasn't just that they were bookish, but they, they cared about doctrine. They cared about truth. In other words, Christians felt like you could be right about what you thought about God or wrong about what you thought about God. <laughs> um, and in an ancient Roman world, since religions weren't really competing with each other in any sort of meaningful way, there wasn't sort of a right way or a wrong way. There's just your way or the, the particular religion's way in your in your province or maybe your ancestors' religion. And you just did it. You didn't think that this is like the correct way in, a, in, a, in, a, in the way we do now. And so the, the idea that, that, that religion is not only bookish, but, but doctrinally uh, uh, sort of guided that you that you care about getting that that correct would have been also strange. Um, mm. That's something philosophers did. They sat around debated truth. Religion didn't. And and again, in the ancient world, those things were seen as, as entirely different. Hmm. Well, let's go back a little bit. You just said that um, the Christian belief in monotheism was shocking or radical. Say some more about that. How was that? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about Christian persecution, there is this perplexing dimension to it that that if someone sits down and really studies the the time period, might be confused by. In other words, one might wonder, why does the average Roman citizen even care what Christians believe? Mm-hmm. Like, 
why are they so upset with them? I mean, think about it. You have a pluralistic, polytheistic society with a whole pantheon of gods, and they're and they're and and along comes Christianity. Why not just leave them alone? Hmm. (laughs) You know, why not? What what is it about Christianity that that stirred up the ire of of the Greco-Roman people and and the and the governing officials? And it's not enough to say that they were weird. And by the way, Christians were weird. Um, you could argue Christians today are still weird in some good ways, maybe in some bad ways. So they were weird in the sense that they didn't fit in, you know, with their ethics and some other things. But that wasn't the reason they were hated. The reason they were hated is because they would not pay homage to the the the, the, the Roman gods. They would not pay homage to the to the to the Roman deities, including the emperor himself. Now you might think, well, why doesn't the society just say, well, okay, fine, we'll just leave you alone? Because the society believed that that if you don't pay homage to the Roman gods, then they wouldn't bless Rome. And so by not paying homage to the Roman gods, Christians were blamed for putting Rome at risk. They were they were they were gonna basically put Rome in danger of of incurring the displeasure of the gods. And this became so pointed that after a while, when when bad things started happening to to Rome, they started blaming the Christians for it. Yeah. Because the Christians weren't paying homage. Right. In fact, Tertullian in one of his apologies has this famous saying where he's like, you can't blame us for every every time there's a flood, it's not our fault. Every time there's a drought, it's not our fault. Every time we lose a battle, it's not our fault. You know, you can't blame us for everything. And you could see what's going on behind the scenes. Basically, because Christians were not paying homage, they're seen as as uh, against Rome. In fact, one of the phrases one of the, the people use to describe Christians is it calls Christians haters of humanity. This is an interesting phrase. Haters of humanity that they that they despise human beings because they put human beings at risk by not by not uh, participating in the, in the Roman cult, and uh-huh. so uh, effectively it was Christian monotheism that was the biggest trigger um, for its uh, persecution. And I think we can all see that today that's not changed. Two thousand years later, it's the same problem. Yeah, um, yeah. Having an exclusive religion uh, has always caused trouble for Christians. Um, it, it caused trouble for Jewish people too, because you know, in the same way, they believed there was one God, and they weren't going to get on board to worship all the other gods. So um, here's the thing, though, that's interesting: is that that's true. Jews are obviously were monotheistic, but they they you, they got what you could call a pass. And the reason they got a pass, generally speaking, is because the the Roman world viewed them as a as a separate um, uh, nation. They were they were they were seen as ethnically. And, and and nationally distinct, and yeah. so they were sort of viewed as a separate people, yeah. Um, and therefore, they were given an allowance, if you will, for their monotheism as just okay, we'll let you do it. Yeah. But this is exactly where Christians were the problem. They weren't over there; they were in here. They were mixed yeah. in with the Roman people, and that's the trigger. Right. Um, and 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 so it's interesting. You know, you could say, well, weren't Jews monotheistic? Why didn't they get cream for this? And that that's why. Um, it was the it was the Gentile all-inclusiveness of Christianity combined with its monotheism. That was the, that was the uh, real factor. Yeah. It's the exclusivity and the inclusivity that no, that's was, right. getting, that's exactly that was right. getting the Christians in trouble. Because So for Jewish people, it was, it was like, oh, that's their religion because that's their ethnicity. That's them. And yep. they're not trying to spread it outside their ethnic group. So Christians said, uh, no, the belief in God is really exclusive. We're not going to believe in all these other gods. 
but they were inclusive in the sense that, no, all people need to believe this, whether they're Jewish, Gentile, whatever nation they're from, whatever, their nationality is almost irrelevant because Jesus is the savior for all people, for Jew and Gentile, no matter who they are. So their inclusivity, everybody is included in this need for salvation and the offer for salvation, and their exclusivity, um, both gets them in trouble, and still that is for us today. Because I, you know, people say to, oh, "Why don't you guys just stay in your, you know, not just in your lane, you know, stay in your corner? You know, you you want to practice your Christianity, fine, keep it to yourself." And the essence of Christianity is no, it's it's not meant to be kept to ourselves. It's for every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. No, that's exactly right. And I've actually in in prior lectures used that same. Uh, dichotomy. It's exclusive in the right ways and inclusive in the right ways. And by the way, you can be exclusive in the wrong ways and inclusive in the wrong ways, right? <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, Christianity could be, if it wasn't construed properly, we could be wrongly exclusive and then wrongly inclusive, but we got to get it right. We're exclusive in terms of monotheism. We're inclusive in terms of uh, socio, uh, you know, uh, economic and, and, and demographic uh, diversity. And so one of the things I tell my students is that if you're, if you're, if you're interested in diversity, then you should be a Christian hmm. because Christians were the most diverse religion in the ancient world. Um, and, now, and it wasn't just ethnic. Um, it didn't just cut across ethnic lines. It cut across gender lines. Right. And it right. also cut across socioeconomic lines, mm-hmm. um, which actually was a big deal for religion in the ancient world. Um, the idea that, you know, lots of religions were, were exclusively to particular genders and even particular sort of classes and Christianity was was troubling to the Roman world because it was was genuinely for everyone and 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 people from every group were converting and that's actually one of the complaints that that Pliny makes is that it's affecting everybody he says he says it's it's affecting rich and poor slave and free male and female um women and children what what are we going to do with this thing and that's that was a fascinating uh insight into the, into what was happening so again, it's so I think it's so helpful and encouraging for us today to learn this history. Um, if, if nothing else, it's, there's a sense of, oh, we've been here before. Or more importantly, God has been involved in his people in these very same kinds of struggles and things. Let me go after one last thing, because uh, again, toward the end of your book, you say there, there's there's three crucial, the most important lessons we've touched on uh, being the prophetic voice when you're not in power. The second is that we're a bookish religion. But then you say third and finally, when we look at to the second century, we are reminded afresh that early Christians, regardless of the exterior pressures, pressures and challenges, were always keen to keep the focus on one simple thing, worshiping Jesus. Uh, expand on that for us, please, a little bit. Yeah, well, tied into that is a little bit of the monotheism speech, right? We just mm-hmm. got finished with, which is when mm-hmm. Christians worship Jesus, they worshiped only Jesus. Okay, so that's part of it. But the other thing I think that, that's important to realize is that, that, that Christian life in the ancient world, as complicated and difficult as it was living in a pagan society, also was, was amazingly simple. They kept the main thing the main thing. And I have a whole chapter in the book uh, that readers will discover if they if they get a copy on early Christian worship. And we discover in the second century that we have a number of testimonies to what early Christians did and what the worship services look like and, and their gatherings together. 
And it looks remarkably similar to what we do today. I mean, Justin Martyr's testimony is one of the main ones where he says, yeah, on you know every Sunday, uh, early in the morning, we gather together and we read the scriptures, including the Old Testament, including the Gospels. And then we have someone stand up and they speak and preach from that and teach us from that. Um, and we sing hymns to Jesus as unto God. And then we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. And when all the dust settles on that, you're like, wow, I, sounds like things haven't really changed much in 2000 years. <laughs> and I think that's, that's exactly the point, right? Is it is it that is the main thing? Um, and, you know, not that they didn't care about what the society was doing in, in some ways, not that they didn't care about what the emperor was doing, but they, their main thing was to try to live peaceably and to worship Jesus. And uh, now I think one could rightly say that that, that is the main thing to do. And it certainly still is the main thing to do now. Yeah, it is indeed the main thing. It's, it's also a transformative thing. Yeah. Um, I think, I think when we worship Jesus, when we remember, when we go back to the basics of the gospel of I'm a sinner who needs a savior and God has sent his son to save people like me, that can transform us to make us more patient, more gracious, more kind, to the world around us that's growing more and more hostile towards us. Um, as the world gets more antagonistic, hostile, uh, uh, intolerant toward us, it's easy to respond in kind. It's easy to become sarcastic at, at the least or hateful at the worst. But if we come back to the worship of Jesus, we remind ourselves of the gospel, then, oh, uh, look at how gracious God has been to me. Uh, as I gather uh, to worship, I look around, lots of people worshiping, but every single person here that is a Christian is here because God rescued them. And that brings a softness and a, uh, a tenderness, a gentleness that is so desperately needed. And so I, I really appreciated that, that um, you're, you're, we're looking at the second century and there's this and there's this, um, but there's tremendous worship and tremendous um, uh, coming together to celebrate uh, and to sing songs of joy. And, and that's so desperately needed always, every single minute, every single day. Yeah, I mean, no, another way to say it is, is that if you're focused on worship is the main thing and and how that changes you, then the main focus is how can I be more like Christ? Mm -hmm. and, and, and the main focus isn't how I can change everybody out there. Yeah. Um, I'm not suggesting there's not a time and a place to speak to broader cultural trends. There are uh, times for that. Uh, but I think the, the main focus of Christians is, is, you know, start with me, you know, <laughs> how do I yeah. need to change? Um, yeah. How do I need to, 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 to grow and, and be different? Um, it's not, it's not that different than what every parent tells their child. You worry about you, not everybody else. You know, it's a little bit like that. You know, we just need to focus on Christ and let him change us and, and make us who he wants us to be. Hmm. Well, I think that's a good place for us to bring this to a close. Uh, we could talk so much more. Uh, I really do hope our listeners will, will value the importance of studying church history uh, and, and really look about the second century and, and take a look at your book and, and allow it to inform, uh, but also uh, deeply encourage. So, uh, Michael, thank you for the time to be on the podcast. Um, to our listeners, uh, please check out uh, the show notes. We'll have a bunch of different links uh, there. 
Uh, also visit our website, cslewisinstitute.org, a source of lots and lots of resources that we pray um, will help you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind.